0: This morning's reading is from the book of Joel. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all generations." Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain of offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not. excuse me, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heaven and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Erica. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's so good to see so many of you this morning. We are finishing our series in the Old Testament, uh, which is we've been doing for the better part of a year now. Taking a week for each of the minor prophets, these last prophetic books in the Old Testament scriptures. Each week, looking at a different part of God's character, because these books were written in proximity to the exile of God's people from His land. And the only way we've said over and over again to get through a hard time like that is to lean on what you know about God. And so the metaphor that we're working with throughout the 14 weeks that we're dealing with these books is uh, that of a lens of a camera. Uh, I've said if if you have a fancy camera, you can change out the lenses of the camera and affect the way the shot looks. It's the same shot, but it can look different based upon whatever lens you might choose to use. And so we've said Christians don't view God through the lens of their circumstances, that's unbelief. Rather, we view our circumstances through the lens of our theology. And so we're trying hard to use the minor prophets to build a theology that can carry us through hard times. And this morning, we're going to talk about what Joel talks about here at the very end of this chapter, in chapter 2 of his prophecy, God's powerful spirit. I remember when, uh, when my kids were smaller, than they are now, and one day Ashley and I were sitting together at the kitchen table talking or somewhere in the house, and the kids were in their rooms playing, and one of them was building something with blocks or some such thing, and they came into the room where we were sitting, and it was one of those funny moments that you have that are a million of these things with kids, but uh, the child that that was working on this project came into the room where we were and said, Mommy, I need you to come help me do this all by myself. (laughs) And that's a great summary of the way most of us us are trying to go about life. We are stubbornly committed to doing it ourselves, but in reality, and somewhere, I think, in every one of our hearts, we know that we need help. We have problems that we can't solve. There are things that are broken about us and about the world we live in that we can't fix. And my young child knew where to go. He knew to call upon the name of mom. Because she can fix anything. That's her job. And the promise of the book of Joel is that we have someone to call upon too, a helper. That's what Jesus calls him in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit. And so, four things. Last week I told you there were only two points, but it didn't mean the sermon was going to be any shorter. Okay, I know, unfortunately, I'm sorry to disappoint, but we have four things this morning, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be any longer, okay? Just to set expectations, get everybody on the same page. But I want you to see these four things this morning from this text about God's Spirit. First, why we need Him. Secondly, why we can have Him. Thirdly, how we get Him. And fourthly, what it means to walk in Him. And you'll see those are the four points of the outline that I've given you. God's spirit, why we need him, why we can have him, how we can get him and what it means to walk in him or walk with him. So let's let's just walk through that together starting with just this first point, this plague of locusts, why we need God's spirit. And the answer to that question, why do we need God's spirit? The answer is that we are not only guilty, we are also broken and our brokenness is a problem that we are powerless to fix. Our children's catechisms Ask the question, in what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And the answer, some of the kids in the room probably know, he made them holy and happy. Okay, he made them holy, without sin, and obedient. He made them happy. The consequence was they were, they were happy, and that's a reference to human flourishing. Now, the catechism goes on to ask, how did Adam and Eve change when they sinned against God? And the answer to that question is, instead of being Holy and happy they became sinful and miserable. Now there is so much, this is why you should do catechism with your children. There is so much parenting material just in those two questions. right? Sin not only makes you guilty before a holy God and liable to his wrath and curse, but sin makes you unhappy. But when the catechism uses the word miserable, it doesn't just mean unhappy. It's a synonym for the idea of our brokenness. We are guilty and we are broken. And the prophet Hosea, which we looked at last week, really explores the problem of our guilt. We've sinned against God. We've, we've um, committed spiritual adultery against Him. And we need to be forgiven and loved and restored. And God has worked in Jesus Christ to do just that. But the prophet Joel is exploring the opposite. The problem of our brokenness. That sin leads to death and pain and misery and curse. And he does this through the imagery he uses in chapters 1 and 2, part of which I didn't print for us to read. So in chapter 1, he paints the picture of a locust invasion that ravages the land and leaves it desolate. Okay, And then in chapter 2, he describes an invading army uh, that is marching through the nation, leaving city after city in its wake in ruins. And maybe, you know, for us, we're not an agrarian society, so the idea of locusts might seem a little out of... Uh, we might be a little out of touch with it, but for us, if you can imagine, if, if I were writing the book of, the, of Joel to a group of people in Winter Haven, Florida, I would say, um, do you remember 2004 when Hurricanes Charlie and then Francis and then Gene hit? And immediately everybody says, ah, I got that. Right, Fr- uh, sorry, Fr- Charlie sent a tree in my backyard through the roof of my boys' bedroom. And water gushing in. But that was just the beginning. Right? Because a week later came Francis. And then a week later came Jean, And we couldn't get out of our neighborhood for like four days. And everything just was absolutely shut down. Uh, there's devastation everywhere. And that's the imagery that the prophet Joel is trying to convey to us. And there's a phrase which I wish I would have included uh, in chapter 2, verse 3. But I didn't. And if you have your Bible, you can look there. And it describes well the aftermath of a natural disaster like a locust plague or plague or a category 5 hurricane and he says the land verse 3 the land was like, it, the land that was like the garden of eden before them but behind them became a desolate wilderness verse 3 the land is like the garden of eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness it's a great description of what sin does how it ruins things the story Of every single one of our lives is a story of how sin has stolen our Eden and replaced it with a desolate wilderness. I don't know if you saw the movie Hugo with Asa Butterfield that came out a few years ago based upon the book The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick. It's a story of an orphan boy who lives alone in the walls of a train station in Paris and keeps the clocks running because it's the job that he inherited from his alcoholic uncle who abandoned him. And it's really the story of this young boy and a relationship that he develops with an old man who runs a toy store in the train station. The toy owner, played by Ben Kingsley, is an old man who is very, very grumpy and very, very sad because he, like Hugo, had suffered incredible loss and had never really recovered. And so there was a time in this man's life where uh, he was doing what he loved the most, but it was taken away from him, and the the grief of it broke him. He, He is a miserable man. And the boy's smart enough to pick up on this. At one point, he explains his observation, which is really fascinating. He says, everything has a purpose, even machines. Clocks tell time, trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. And maybe that's why broken machines make me so sad. They can't do what they're meant to do. And then he thinks about his new friend, this old man, and he says, maybe, maybe it's the same with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. Now, that's really good theology, by the way. Being broken means we can't do what we're meant to do. And in the story, this boy Hugo has a particular knack for fixing things that are broken. He finds clocks and machines and such, and he brings them back to his little place where he lives, and he puts them back together. Um, you know, and, and, and it's fascinating. When he meets this old man who is so obviously broken, he can't help himself. Hugo sets out to become his friend, and it's through his kindness that the man's life begins to be put back together again. And it really is, a, it's a beautiful story, it really is, about the power of friendship and how we should handle one another with such care. Because we all have f- fragile, not fragile in Italian, but fragile. I hope you got that reference, right? Must be Italian, fragile. Fragile, stamped across our lives and how we should handle one another with such care. But I think it's so powerful for me because it is a picture of the way God comes to us and through kindness and friendship, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit begins to heal our brokenness. And so what you see in this book of Joel, and you really can't, you can't see it well because we only picked chapter 2, but in the entire book, there's a tr- there's a structure to the book. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, that goes all the way to chapter 2, about verse 17, and from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 17, there's this move of, it before there's Eden, but after there's desolate wilderness. But then, Something begins to happen in, in chapter 2, verse 18. There's a turn. There's a turn in the book. And everything, so everything before chapter 18 is how sin has taken us from Eden and produced in our lives a desolate wilderness. But then from chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 3, the book begins to turn and describe how God is coming to meet us where we are in that place of a desolate wilderness and he's bringing us back to Eden. And so in verse 25 of chapter 2, you see this great promise the Lord gives us, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So the promise of the gospel is not only that in Jesus Christ God forgives our sins, but also through the work and the friendship of the Holy Spirit, he is remaking us. That's what the prophet Joel promises, that God will deal with our sins... But he also promises to restore, us to, what, to restore to us what has been lost. God will address both our guilt and our brokenness. And so the expectation then of the gospel is not just that because we believe in Jesus, we'll be people who can have their sins forgiven. It is that if we believe in Jesus and if we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will begin to experience, because of his work, the flourishing that we're meant to live with. See, the answer to our brokenness is the promise of the spirit verses 28 through 32 the prophet ezekiel also spoke about this promise of restoration and he uses even more vivid imagery in ezekiel 37 he says there's a ezekiel wakes up and there's a valley of dry bones before him and as ezekiel begins to prophesy over this valley of dry bones which is meant to represent our dry lives our brokenness our you know our devastation as he begins to As he begins to prophesy the word of God, preach the gospel of God over these dry bones, he recounts there came a sound, a rattling, and a great wind like a breath uh, breathed life into the dry bones, and they lived. And then God explains. He says to Ezekiel, "...these bones are the house of Israel. Say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land." And then you shall know that I am the Lord. The Hebrew word for breath is the word for God's spirit. So the breath there in Ezekiel 37 that gives life to dry bones was the spirit of God. And so the spirit who hovered over the waters at the founding of creation in Genesis 1 will once again hover over God's people to remake them. We're not only guilty we're broken and our brokenness is a pow- problem that we are powerless to fix and that's why we need God's spirit because his work in our lives is the solution but secondly the second thing we want to talk about not only why do we need God's spirit but how can we have God's spirit how can we have him why excuse me why can we have him why what happens here that shows us why God can make this offer to us and there's a particular order in the book in this book in the way that God acts you have to see that to understand the point I'm trying to make here. So before the promise of the Spirit, verse 28, you have to endure, go back to verse 1. See, the Spirit's down all the way at the end of the chapter, but at the beginning of the chapter, in order, before you can get to the Spirit down there at the end, you have to first, chapter 2, verse 1, endure the great day of the Lord. So Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds And thick darkness. And so the day of the Lord here is God's coming to deal with sin. It's judgment day. And the invasion of the locusts there in chapter 1 causes Joel's imagination to jump to what he calls the day of the Lord. Now we're going to talk more about this as we go through the minor prophets. It's a really big theme, but not today. What is significant for us this morning is the order. God comes to judge sin on the day of the Lord, then the Spirit comes. So verses 1 through 17 of chapter 2 is all about judgment. And then again, you can't see it as well because I've not printed the whole thing for you, but in chapter 18, there's a change. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And from there, Joel begins to talk about restoration. The first part of restoration is material blessings, he says, verses 18 through 27. God will heal the land. There will be plenty to eat and so forth. And then in verse 28... He begins to talk about spiritual blessings. He says, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so the the order that we see here is the day of the Lord leads to the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. Now why is that so important? In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were gathered together. And it had been 40 days since Easter weekend. And the disciples had been told to wait Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, I am, sending, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in, the, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so they're, they're there, and they're gathered together, and there comes a rushing wind. And, and, okay, you read rushing wind. If you're a Jew and you read rushing wind in, in, in Acts chapter 2, guess what you think about? Ezekiel chapter 37. There comes a rushing wind, and tongues of fire, and the Spirit comes down on them. And, and then later in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands... To give the first sermon to this new early church to explain what was happening, and he says there in Acts 2 verse 16, "This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and then he quotes at length from Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. Peter saw Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church as the fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit promised here by the prophet Joel, which means that the day of the Lord must have happened. But when? Joel says, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, verse 2. Which makes sense of Mark's gospel. Mark 15, verse 33, when we read, when the sixth hour had come, that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there came a great darkness over the whole land. And so as Jesus hung upon the cross, darkness covered the earth. The great day of the Lord had come because Jesus hung there bearing our sins in his body. And the wrath of God that had been aimed at us came down upon him instead. And So the Spirit's coming in Acts chapter 2 is a sign that God had previously dealt with our sins at the cross. And now the Spirit was coming to bless and to heal and to restore. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I have really good news. At least it's good news to me. If you're here and you're a Christian, for you, the day of the Lord has already come. It was the day that the Lord Jesus hung on the cross for your sins and the sky was darkened and the earth was shaken by God's fierce wrath poured out upon him in our place. Which is why, if you look at what happens in this book, there is this, there is this change that happens as this chapter 2 begins to unfold. At the beginning of the chapter, all the verbs are really omnious. Verse 1, tremble. Verse 12, fast, weep, mourn. But then once you get past verse 18 and God begins to come and work for his people, you see in verse 21, everything changes. It's no longer weep, mourn, fast, tremble. Now it's verse 21, fear not. Verse 21, be glad and rejoice. Fear not. Be glad and rejoice, he says again. And so something has happened. And there's a, there's a massive application for us here that the day of the Lord has passed. And that this is the time of blessing. That's Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit... Coming down at Pentecost is the evidence that our sins have been paid for. He remembers them no more. Now, what does that do in your life if you believe that? What did it do to them? We read in the book of Acts, they were very different men after Acts 2. They had a new power in their life that created a new confidence and boldness. And it can do the same for us as well. And so, as we read these prophets together this year in our community Bible reading Remember, remember, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, for you the day of the Lord is not looming out there in your future. It has already come. In Jesus Christ, God has dealt with our sins. And now, in sending the Spirit, He is dealing with our brokenness. But thirdly, if that's why we need the Spirit, and if that's why we can have Him, thirdly, how does He come? How does the power of God's Spirit come into your life? How do you get it? And that's the third thing. That's the third point we want to look at from this text. And uh, there's an irony here, okay? There's something we have to deal with that, that's, somewhat, that's somewhat counterintuitive. And it's just this, that according to Joel, in all of the Bible, if you tap into, if you understand, I, okay, I, I, get, I, I really do. I know that I'm broken. I can feel it. I may try to deny it, but I really can't feel it. I, there's a brokenness about my life. And I understand, okay, Jesus has died. Now God can deal with my brokenness in the Holy Spirit. But how, how does God's Spirit come into my life and begin to deal with me. And the irony is, is that God's power, according to the Bible, only comes to those who admit they're weak. It doesn't come to people who are strong. It doesn't come to the powerful. It doesn't come to the well-connected. It doesn't come to the educated or to the righteous. It comes to the weak and the helpless, the broken and the needy who bring their weakness and their need to God in faith and ask Him to work for them. And it's this wonderful, wonderful phrase down at the very end of the chapter, verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that phrase is a sort of formulaic expression of worship and trust in God for salvation. The name of the Lord is who God is. It refers to His distinct character and attributes. So the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe, Proverbs 18, 10 says. In other words... To know God loves you and that he has power and authority to protect you. His name, if you know it, it can make you feel safe in the middle of something very difficult. And so to call upon the name of the Lord means that you recognize in him the solution to your problem. To call upon the name of the Lord is to take your weakness to him because he's the one who has the solution. Now when my sink won't drain in my house, I do not call upon the name of Jonathan Winfrey, my pastor. There's a long story that I don't have time to tell behind that. Jonathan has a propensity of flooding things when he goes to work on plumbing. As do I. If you need somebody to stand by you in a hard time, call upon the name of your pastor. If you need somebody to fix your sink, do not call upon the name of your pastors. I call upon the name of Kurt the Plumber. <laughs> when my sprinklers won't work, I call upon my friend Ryan because sprinklers are his business. If my heart hurts, or somebody I know heart hurts love, I call upon the name of my friend David Dodd. If there's a pastoral issue I'm not sure how to handle, I call upon my pastor, Tim Rice in Lakeland, because he's older and wiser than me. Do you see how, see, calling upon the name of the Lord means you recognize in him the attributes and the character of a person who can solve your problems. It's really teaching us how salvation works, Okay. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse from Joel in his letter to the Romans to establish that salvation is by grace. He uses words like believe and trust and these sorts of things as synonyms for call to show that calling on the name of the Lord is the opposite of trying to work, do the work yourself. The problem we have is that God is so holy, we owe Him perfect obedience, and, and um, yet we're full of sin. And so how do you solve the problem? If, if, the, if humanity's problem is God's a holy God... I owe him perfect obedience and yet I can, can't, no matter how hard I try, I can't pull it off. Then how, did this, how does the problem get solved? And the reason I have a plumber and an electrician and a yard guy and a car mechanic, on all of those people on speed dial in my phone is because if I have a problem that deals with any of those things and I try to fix it myself, I only make it worse. I have the spiritual gift of taking the Garden of Eden and turning it into a barren wilderness. I do. So how do we solve the problem of our sin? A religious person tries to solve the problem of their sin by following the rules and getting their theology straight and hopefully doing enough good that it will eventually outweigh the bad. But by contrast, a Christian, when faced with the problem of their sin, calls upon the name of the Lord because she knows she's up against something that is a problem that she can't solve on her own. See, it's the opposite of what the prodigal son does when he returns from his wanton living, if you remember that story. He comes home and his strategy is, Father, make me a hired servant so that I can work for you, and hopefully in the process of my working for you, I can pay you back everything that I owe you. That's not the Christian response. But for the Christian, for the person who's experienced conversion, the moment of salvation comes when you you stop doing and you start calling. Religious people do. Christians call. But this phrase not only teaches us how salvation works, it also shows us how the whole Christian life works. And the reason I chose that Galatians passage in Galatians 3 for an assurance of pardon is if the solution for our sin and brokenness uh, is in all areas of life God's Spirit would come, then how does God's Spirit come? And the answer is by calling upon the name of the Lord, not just at a revival meeting, Or an evangelistic crusade, but over and over again, day after day, all throughout your life. Paul says, we read it together just a few minutes ago. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, we might start out trusting in Jesus' work, but eventually what begins to happen is we drift back toward our work begin to focus on what I have to do, I have to go to church, I have to follow the rules, I have to be a good person, and what's happening, as all the focus goes on to what I'm doing or what I'm not doing is, what, what, what Paul says in Galatians 3 is when I begin to focus on me and my doing or my not doing, I'm actually unplugging my life from the power source of the Spirit because the power cord that connects my life with His life is His grace. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? When you turn away from grace, and when you move back into legalistic law-keeping, as the Galatians were doing, what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from God's power. Because again, the power cord that connects my life to His life and power is my need. And so who's the Spirit work for? Galatians 3.5 Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by faith? God doesn't help those who help themselves. Contrary to what 65% of Americans think, that's not in the Bible. God doesn't help those who help for themselves. Trusting in yourself that you're righteous like the religious folks in Luke chapter 18. Boasting in your strength, putting your confidence and your hope in yourself... That's unplugging your life from the Spirit's power. God's word says he works for those who wait for him. He works for those who need him. And so the call of this passage comes to us. Return to me, verse 12, with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. And then Joel adds his own words and admonition. Return to the Lord, verse 13, "for for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And that word return is really the word repentance. And repentance means to turn around and to go in the opposite direction of the direction you're currently going in. And so, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but in your sin and your brokenness you're beginning to realize you have a problem that you can't solve, you can't fix. To be your friend this morning I would say to you, what Joel will call you to is repent And call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, full of compassion and abounding in steadfast love. But please, 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 please hear me when I say that that repentance that leads to life is not just to repent of your sins, but also to repent of your righteousness. Don't think that the solution to your sins is that you become a good person. That's religion, it's not Christianity. The solution to your sins is not that you become good, the solution to your sins is the work of Jesus for you and the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Call upon the name of the Lord and you should be saved. Christians, you don't get off the hook either though. If you're here and you're a Christian, it's the same call. Martin Luther in his 95 Theses famously said, all of life is repentance. In other words... All of life for the Christian is the constant turning away from trying to do life on our own and calling upon the name of the Lord for strength and grace. And so, what's the area of struggle you're up against? And I want you to take a minute, I'm going to give you a second. What's an area of struggle that you're up against at this moment? Take a moment pick something out. What's the obstacle that's just in front of you? You can't seem to break through. I wonder, do you know that the real struggle... The make it or break it. The make it or break it about that thing that's in your imagination. The real struggle is not to approach that thing, whatever it might be, as if your strength is the solution. See, that's the real struggle. The real struggle is to not approach that thing as if your strength is the solution. Because when you do that, when you activate your will toward a solution to your problem, you're actually unplugging your life from the Spirit's power. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Take your will, (laughs) take your will, replace it with need, and then call upon him. That's how the Christian life works. And that's how the Spirit comes. But lastly, one last thing. And then I'll be done. Paul in Galatians five encourages us to walk by the Spirit to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. And so lastly, we need to ask, what what does the Spirit-filled life look like? Or what does it mean to walk in Him or walk with Him? Because I do think there's something here about that. And we need to spend some time on this because, admittedly, this is a huge area of weakness for us. And when I say us, I mean our denomination probably even our church to some degree. Because even in our pastor's meeting this past week, discussing these verses at the end of Joel 2, you could feel the uncertainty about how to handle this topic of the Spirit. There's no chapter in our confession of faith on the Spirit. Did you hear that? There's no chapter in our confession of faith on the Spirit. And for a denomination that loves theology, we obviously don't love a theology of the Spirit. Prophecies, public stuff, speaking in tongues like Joel alludes to here, and those things that happen in Acts, in Pen, in Pen, Acts 2 and Pentecost, they aren't a, a regular part of our worship service. Prophecy, dreams, visions, those things scare Presbyterians. Right? They do. Like, we just, Can we just cut that little part out right there? In the reading at you know, the beginning of, of verse 28, and I know there are some of you more familiar with these sorts of manifestations of the Spirit, and I want to say to you, I'm grateful you're here. You stretch us, and that 's good, so please continue to do so, but hopefully I can stretch you and all of us a little bit by making just a few comments on what I think is the best understanding of these verses and we might disagree, but let 's let 's just let 's just be an encouragement to one another in this, and I want to have a particular focal point just in the few minutes that I have left one general one general and then two specific applications of exactly what. Joel means about the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out here in verses 28 and beyond, and what it means for us to walk in the Spirit. One general and two specific applications, and then I'm done. First, I want you to see that the emphatic statement, we read that, you know, it shall come to pass, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men will see visions. We read that, and for me, because I'm nervous about it probably, I immediately, the words that kind of come out in bold are... Prophecy, dreams, and visions. What are those things, right? But what we're meant to see in bold when we read verse 28 is not the prophecy and the dreams and the visions. The emphatic there, the big deal, the big deal in verse 28 is the promise that the Spirit will be poured out on everyone. Because up to this point, the Spirit would only come on a select few. There would be a prophet here or there or a king or judge or someone who God raised up and they did something unique and the spirit came and then went. But in Joel, the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Men and women, young and old, even servants. So don't get caught up in the prophecy and dreams and visions stuff before you marvel at what the really big deal is, which Which is, no matter who you are, if you're a fourth grade girl or you're a 90 year old widow, if you've trusted in Jesus as your savior, then his spirit lives in you. That means that he is powerfully and supernaturally at work in you and through you. That got nothing from you guys. See, you don't believe me yet. That that's the big deal. It's not just televangelists or celebrity pastors on TV that God is using. Men and women, young and old, extroverts, believe it or not, also introverts, people new to Christianity and longtime Christians, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, Joel says. Every, thank you. There we go. All flesh. Every single one of us. that's really good news. But then, secondly, a a specific application. What I think is at the heart of what Joel means by this is that it's the promise, the Spirit is a promise of a supernatural understanding, prophecy, dreams, visions, and those things, that produces in people character, not just charisma. So prophecy, dreams, visions, all refer to supernatural understanding, not necessarily predictive in nature, not fortune-telling. It's supernatural insight into biblical truths for the purpose of personal and corporate edification. So you have to take these verses side by side with all the other prophecies of the Spirit in places like Ezekiel 36. And the the promise of the Spirit in the prophetic writings was that the Spirit would come, like Ezekiel says, to give us a new heart, that God says, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to obey my rules. So the purpose of the Spirit was to make people who were as yet unwilling and unable to obey, now have the abiding presence of God in them that they might become people who could truly obey from the heart. When Paul talks about the, the life of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it centers around the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. And so Jonathan Edwards, in charity and its fruits, said that the fruit of the Spirit... He contends the fruit of the Spirit is more important and should be more greatly desired than the gifts of the Spirit. Not at all. I'm not at all trying to minimize the ministry of the... I don't want to minimize the ministry of the gifts of the, or the, gifts of the Spirit, but I just want you to see, put this in, highlight this one thing. Edwards says the fruit of the Spirit should be desired more greatly than the gifts of the Spirit because gifts in, in, of themselves aren't an indication of something changing in the interior life of the person who, for example, is speaking in tongues or prophesying god's powers at work but not necessarily inwardly changing the person but he says the gifts he says gifts are like a beautiful garment that does not alter the nature of the man who wears it they are like precious jewels with which the body may be adorned but true grace true grace is that whereby the very soul itself becomes a precious jewel And his argument has always been compelling to me, not as an excuse, please don't hear me, not as an excuse to ignore the gifts of the Spirit, but because Paul himself says that if we speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, and if we understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, we are nothing. And so it's the promise of a supernatural understanding that produces a life of love. And then lastly, also, it's the promise of a supernatural power tends toward the ordinary and not the extraordinary. We think of the life of the spirit and we immediately think the big stuff. The spirit is supernatural power, but it is not just on display in extraordinary signs and wonders. It's just as powerfully on display in the ordinary stuff. And so, when I get a front row seat to witnessing one of my children be being kind to the other, I think signs and wonders. Right? Right there. Holy cow. That's a miracle, right? When the human heart moves towards another human heart in kindness that is a miracle. Do you believe that? It is. And so don't get caught. See, we can get so far removed from the ordinary day-to-day stuff. It is it's enough. It's enough for your life ambition to be to be a good husband and father. And the spirit is the power for that. Supernatural understanding. That produces character toward a life of love. Supernatural power that's towards the ordinary, not the extraordinary. In John chapter 7, just to close, Jesus says that if we get connected to the the power of the Spirit, our lives become like streams of living water that overflow and pour out into people all around us. Now, what are those streams of living water that is the Spirit? Probably, John 7, there's an allusion to the prophecy in Ezekiel 47 that we read just a few weeks ago in our community Bible reading, of the picture of the river flowing out of the temple, and we read about the river flowing out of the temple, and about the rivers of life flowing out of us, that wherever the river goes, there is life. And that's a great description of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Wherever they go, they bring life. Don't you want that to be true of you? Don't you want it to be true of our church? I do. Return. Call upon the name of the Let's pray together this morning, can we? Father, thank you for this great word to us this morning of the promise of your Holy Spirit. And we confess that we are immature in the things of your Spirit. And that sometimes, as hard as it may be for us to admit, our theology works against that for us. And so I do pray. Thank you for our brothers and sisters who patiently endure with us, who are in our midst who, uh, have been, um, who have been patient and kind with us, and we pray that we would, you, you would use the, those of us from different shades of understanding of these things to encourage and strengthen one another. Uh, but we do pray ultimately, Father, that in, in your Spirit's coming, that it would be for us supernatural understanding of the truth of your gospel that would produce a life of love for others and supernatural power toward just the ordinary, everyday, day-to-day things that you've called us to, so that we might be a people... Uh, of which it is true, what Jesus says in John 7, that we, because of the Spirit's presence in our life, would be like those where, wherein streams of living water are overflowing the banks of our life and pouring out wherever we go, that we would bring life. We so long for that, and so help us this morning. Help non-Christians in the room this morning make, make sense of the, of the need to call upon the name of the Lord that they might be saved. And help Christians this morning make sense of the need uh, of being poked, as Joel has, toward calling upon the name of the Lord over and over again, day after day, that we might find the power of the Spirit that we so desperately need to address and to deal with our brokenness. We humbly come before you, even as we sing now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as the Lord would send us now to the people and the places that he's called us to, um, He promises from Matthew chapter 28 that he would go with us. And that is the promise of the Spirit. And so the work before us is as we go into the places that he sent us to go, not thinking that our strength is the solution to the problems we encounter there, but to turn our propensity to glorify and magnify our strength into a commitment to staying needy and to calling upon him. That's the place where he comes to work. And the reason you can do that is because the promise of the benediction is yours. That in the place of your need, that's the place he promises to go to work. That's what these words mean. And So receive this benediction then and go forth to be one whose streams of living water give life to everyone they meet. That's the hope. And so we we pray, Lord Jesus, do that among us. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.